Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, right. That's only. There's like four other people in this church who have this birthday. Happy birthday to you, poor. Yeah, that's right. All right, we're going to play a game. Ready to play a game? The game is called Spot the Truth. Spot the Truth. I'm going to read you four statements. I want you to figure out which of them, if any or all, are true. Statement number one, millennials are leaving Christianity by droves. Statement number two, churches are dying all around. Statement number three, the future of America looks more secular than religious. Statement four, the nuns, that's people who say they have no religious affiliation, the nuns are skyrocketing. How many of you think the first of those statements, millennials leaving Christianity by droves, how many think that's true? Very good. Second, how many think churches are dying all around? Churches are dying. Okay. Number three, future of America looks more secular than religious. All right. Number four, the nuns uh, are skyrocketing. Okay. I don't usually like to do this. In fact, I never like to do this. I don't like to trick people, but they're all wrong. The reason I did it that way, those are absolutely none of those are true. The reason I did it that way is I wanted to read those as if they were true because that's the way they're pounded at you all the time and at me all the time. But they are not accurate. Here's the truth. The percentage of young adults regularly attending evangelical and non-denominational churches has doubled in the last 50 years. Do you get that? Young adults, millennials, doubled in the last 50 years. Churches are not dying. Here's a quote from, uh, from Dr. Byron Johnson. There is indeed a dramatic decline among some American churches, but this severe decline can be found in a distinct group of churches within theologically liberal mainline Protestantism. On the other hand, theologically conservative denominations are not in decline but are alive and well. American church attendance for believers in Jesus. Did you know this? For believers in Jesus, American church attendance is at an all-time high both in raw numbers and in percentage of population. More Americans go to church now percentage-wise than ever before in human history. The future of this country is not secular. Can't be. Number four, almost none of the group called nuns, this is from Pew Research, are unbelievers. These are people who were never committed to the faith and they finally feel free to tell pollsters so. That is the truth. In her book, Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin summarizes the misunderstanding with an image I really, really liked. Here's her image. She says, often when we observe from a distance, we misinterpret. For example, she says, look at the night sky, you'll see much darkness. But train a telescope on the blackest patch and millions of galaxies burst into view. Today we begin a new study. This series is designed to answer questions about Jesus, to deal with objections and false perceptions about Christianity. This series is designed to present a defense for the hope we have in God. Here's what we're going to do. You and I are going to train our telescopes on the supposed empty spots of Christianity and see if they are full of any bright light. In your notes, you'll see our series premise. If you're online, welcome. So good to be with you. Uh, if you will, your host has told you where you can find the notes. You guys in here, open up your bulletin. You'll see the series. This is the why. The premise is the why. Why are we studying this? A gauntlet has been thrown down in the Western world, I'm sure you have noticed. Powerful entities claim that Christianity is actually bad for human beings. Uh, culture, politics, education, entertainment routinely are hostile toward or even close to those who follow Jesus. Rather than retreat or attack, Christians must know the wonder of Jesus so well that we make a winsome, reasonable defense for the hope that is within us. Open your Bible to John chapter 16. John 16, fourth book of your New Testament is John. Go to John chapter 16 and let's read verse 33. Uh, we will be reading from 
from John only today. We'll be turning to that. We're reading from lots of places, but we'll be turning your Bible to John, all in the upper room discourse, this conversation Jesus had with his disciples. Verse 33, near the end of that discourse, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Now, let's read from that again, although this time I'd like to read responsively and include another one of Jesus' statements to his followers. Would you, uh, would you join me on the underlying text? So John 16, you will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. And then Luke 6, 27, Jesus said, I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. And that takes us to our series objective. This is what we hope to see God achieve in us through this study. The objective, that we bless people by being ready, willing, and able to share the wonder of Jesus and his ongoing work building his church. Here's what we're going to be. You and I are going to become powerful telescopes that let people see past the darkness past the supposed blackness that they think they see in Christianity. We're going to examine a bunch of cultural assumptions about Jesus and Christianity and the Bible, and we're going to show them the bright truth in every one of those topics. Here's how Peter put it. This is what we're going to try to do. 1 Peter chapter 3, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. And here he quotes Isaiah 8, do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. All God's people said, amen. All right, let's begin with what I call the... um, the untrue trajectory of hopelessness, all right? Um, we, we already dealt with the common mistaken assumption that churches are dying all around. We noted that the worldwide church comprised of all believers in Jesus is not dying. It's actually growing. But many people, including many of us, many Christians, believe that things are just hopeless. You know, there are Christians who even wonder if maybe the atheists are correct in saying that we'd be better off without any religion at all. How did... How did such wrong ideas take root? How do these things take purchase in our lives? There are a few factors involved. Let me put them in order. The first thing, this is usually the first thing, is a trespass. In our day, it's a trespass by the new atheists. Uh, The new atheists make dedicated, desperate, but smart move called, we're going to call it trespassing. Let me explain it this way. Remember when you were a kid? And you got in an argument on the playground, okay? You and another kid. Everybody kind of gathered around because there was this you know, argument going on in the playground. And the other kid said something like, oh, well, I looked that one up online. You're wrong. The Wall Street Journal says on June 12th, 2020, the record show, you, they, they start quoting this, you know, stuff. And you can feel the audience, you're losing, you're losing. So what do you do? You, you jump in and you say something like this. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, well, well, my dad takes the journal, and I read in there that people who wear ponytails are stupid, and you wear ponytails all the time, right? Yeah, I, I know you didn't quote the Wall Street Journal on your third grade playground, but you, you get the idea, right? The, the idea is that you nonsensically, you nonsensically try to take the moral high ground absurdly. And you know what's funny? If you'll think back, think back to your elementary playground, you'll be astonished at how often that actually worked, Right? It actually, you got everybody talking about ponytails. And, and for the record, ponytails are awesome. 
sign of intelligence. Anyway, um, you, you got, yeah, right there. See, brilliant. I told you. Um, you got everybody talking about that and whether that made somebody stupid and you, you got everything, you were off the hook. Let, let me put it this way. You claimed the moral and intellectual high ground by pointing out a supposed flaw in your opponent, which almost never is really a flaw. You markedly refused to engage with her facts and you dishonestly took her base of support as your own. That, my friends, is exactly what these so-called new atheists have been doing for the past 25 years. That's it. Our elder Brian Behrman gave me the book from which I, I quoted a moment ago, Rebecca McLaughlin's Confronting Christianity. She describes really well how the new atheists do this trespass. Story time. You ready? Story time. Here we go. Okay. <clears throat> Rebecca McLaughlin, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. <clears throat> chapter 1. No, I'm kidding. It's not chapter 1. All right, here we go. The new atheists have boldly claimed the moral and intellectual high ground, even when that means trespassing. In a popular 2011 TED Talk, Atheism 2.0, School of Life founder Alain de Botton advocated a new kind of atheism that could retain the goods of religion without the downside of belief. He salivated over the black American preaching tradition and the enthusiastic response of congregants. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Christ. Thank you, Savior. Rather than abandoning that rapture, de Baton suggests secular audiences respond to atheist preaching by lauding their heroes. He said, thank you, Plato. Thank you, Shakespeare. Thank you, Jane Austen. One wonders how Shakespeare, whose world was fundamentally shaped by Christianity, would have felt at being cast as an atheist icon. But when it comes to Jane Austen, the answer is clear. A woman of deep, explicit, abiding faith in Jesus, she would have been utterly appalled. Likewise, at the 2016 Reason Rally, anybody remember that one? Remember the Reason Rally? Uh, it was designed to mobilize atheists, agnostics, and nuns. Multiple speakers there invoked Martin Luther King Jr.'s March on Washington. As if a rally that despised Christianity would have pleased one of the most powerful Christian preachers in American history. In the same year, is that, that is maybe my favorite slide I've ever made. I just want to point that out real quickly. Sorry. In the same year, uh, this is Rebecca McLaughlin. Same year, I stumbled upon an Atlantic article that promised to explain why the British tell better children's stories. As a Brit living in America, I read it eagerly, only to find this article arguing that Americans' children's stories are less compelling because they're more Christian. The author cited the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia as examples of stories shaped primarily by paganism. Apparently not knowing that Tolkien and Lewis were passionate Christians who grounded their stories in the death and resurrection truth claims of Jesus. Close quote. How has a generation come to believe the lie that churches are dying? Because we have accepted this idiotic trespass of the atheists. Now that in turn, here's the next step, that makes us terrified when the heresy hunters come out in force. And the heresy hunters do come. This is described really well by Rod Dreher in his book, Live Not By Lies. He tells this story. He says, in 2019, I went to see the English public intellectual Sir Roger Scruton. Settling into his farmhouse library in rural Wiltshire, Sir Roger agreed that we're not waging a political battle. We're rather engaged in a war of religion. He explained that in the emerging soft totalitarianism, official doctrine is not opposed from above by the regime, but rather arises by left-wing consensus from below, along with severe enforcement in the form of witch hunting and scapegoating. Thought crimes, heresies, in other words, by their very nature make accusation and guilt the same thing. He saw this in his travels in the communist world, and here's a quote from Sir Roger. 
For this purpose, there were thought crimes invented every now and then with which to trap the enemy of the people, Sir Roger said. In my day, it was the Zionist imperialist conspiracy. You could be accused of being a member of that, and nobody could possibly find a defense against the accusation because nobody knew what it was. It's just like these new thought crimes, homophobia, Islamophobia, transphobia, and on and on. What on earth do they mean? But anyone can join in the throwing of electronic stones at the doctrinal scapegoat and never be held to account for it because you don't have to prove the accusation, close quote. That's awful, isn't it? But it's nothing new. Non-biblical heresy hunters have been a plague on God's people for a long time. Just, just look at um, Lamentations, chapter 3. Uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah felt the pain of the heresy hunters. For no reason, Jeremiah says in Lamentations 3.52, for no reason my enemies hunted me like a bird. They smothered my life in a pit and threw stones on me. This, my friends, is a statement of the trajectory of hopelessness. The new atheists trespass, absurdly claiming the moral high ground. Their fake doctrines get enforced in a totalitarian way to silence God and his people, and it makes... It makes Christians feel hopeless, but it shouldn't. After all, Jesus promised this would happen. Jesus himself promised that this would be the case for New Testament Christians. John especially captured a lot of Jesus' words about attacks. Turn back. It's one page in my Bible. Turn back in your Bible to John 15. John 15, verse 52. Uh, John 15, I'm sorry, 52. Verse 18. Verse 18. Yeah, good, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> verse 18. If the world hates you, Jesus said, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Christians will be regularly hated and mistreated, but God is with us in our hurt. Jesus promised later to be with them always to the end of the age. And that makes all the difference. Remember Lamentations, we read 52 and 53. For no reason, my enemies hunted me like a bird. They smothered my life in a pit and threw stones on me. Look at a couple of the next verses. I called on your name, Lord, from the depths of the pit. You came near whenever I called you. And you said, everybody, what did God say? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. God's empowerment is why people like Jeremiah and Jesus' disciples stand strong. But I also have some bad news. Sadly... Christians have often not helped God's case. Rebecca McLaughlin describes uh, some current problems. Uh, she does many more, but I'll just grab these ones. She says this, To some extent, of course, we Christians have dug our own grave. The entrenchment of the culture wars has led many believers to lose touch with their heritage. While Christians and atheists alike assume that secular means normative. Have you ever thought about that? That is sick. We actually think secular is normative. Uh, Christians, she goes on, Christians invented the university, founded most of the world's top schools to glorify God. And yet, in some pockets of Christianity, studying is seen as a threat to faith. Christians invented science, and yet science is seen as antithetical to Christianity. Christians have told some of the best stories in history, but... Among Christians, if the tales are too good, if they're too entrancing, too magical, we assume those authors cannot espouse our supposedly story-killing faith. Close quote. You see the problem. We, we dig our own grave. We'd be wiser to stay on point about Jesus. That way, any battles we get into are not about arguments over science or, or magic in books or us. 
any arguments are about Jesus. And if we stay focused on Jesus, we stop feeding into the trajectory of hopelessness. Paul spoke about this to the Christians in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 2, for I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. There, there were many political and and social issues that were no doubt burning in Paul as he lived in that moral cesspool called Corinth. But he, for, he forgot all that, and he focused on Jesus alone. Christians, we don't help things when we get into culture where arguments, when our words are about less than Jesus, when our thoughts are not taken captive to Christ, that only exacerbates the trajectory of hopelessness. However, despite all of our mistakes, it is astounding to consider the truth that is headlined on the right side of your notes. Look there, the reality and wonder of church growth. Look at this statement, Acts chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Throughout um, Luke's amazing book of Acts, that refrain keeps appearing. It appears over and over in Acts. The churches grew and the churches grew and the churches grew. Isn't that wonderful? And guess what? That refrain from Acts, it has never ended. In fact, the world is becoming, this may shock you, the world is becoming increasingly religious and specifically increasingly Christian. The trajectory of hopelessness is a lie. Look at this. Globally, Christianity continues to increase, as does Islam. Hinduism, Buddhism, they're in slight decline. Uh, Judaism remains steady at about 0.2% of world population. 40% of Americans who are raised non-religious become religious as adults, and almost all of those become believers in Jesus Christ. 40%. By contrast, of those who are raised Protestant, <clears throat> excuse me, less than 20% leave Christianity. Get this one. Uh, Rebecca pointed out how, how people become anti-intellectual sometimes in Christianity. Look at this. Far from eroding Christian belief, education actually enforces Christian practice. Do you know worldwide who are the people most likely to be weekly church attenders? The most highly educated Christians. Isn't that fascinating? China's Christian population, conservatively, is pegged at 68 million, about 5% of their population. By 2030, demographers expect China to have more Christians than America, and they expect by 2050 that China will be a Christian-majority country. By 2060, sociologists expect Christianity to remain the largest belief system in the world, increasing, actually, from 31 to 32 percent of population. Islam, in that period, is expected to grow from 26 to 31 percent. Hinduism should drop about 3 percent, Buddhism about 6 or 7 percent. By 2060, those who identify as atheist agnostic or none will decline from 16 to 13 percent. In the year 2000, I spent some time uh, in Cambridge, England. A, a buddy of mine is a professor there, and, and he, had <clears throat> he had Jana and I attend a, a bunch of events for their uh, student group. Really robust, delightful student group, all these international students, all these British students um, who were believers in Christ. One of those British students was named Rebecca. She was very bright. She went on to get her Ph.D. She married another student from the group who was a guy from Oklahoma, so you know he's awesome. Um, and that Rebecca is the same lady who wrote the book that we've been quoting, Confronting Christianity. She says this about those statistics I just shared with you, about which no one argues, by the way. Those statistics I just shared with you, that she says this, if trends continue, my secular friends are twice as likely to raise Christians as I am to raise children who become non-religious. Close quote. The world is becoming increasingly Christian. And the reason for that may be that Christianity could be described as a miracle drug. 
That's a strange title, I know. It's an admittedly strange title. It's taken from a 2016 article written by a Harvard public health professor, Tyler Vanderveel. Um, I just gotta say, and I'm sure he's a great guy. Does that not look like someone who'd be named Tyler Vanderveel <laughs> and teach at Harvard? Anyway. He and John Sinniff uh, wrote this fascinating article and, and a number of articles since then. And one of the things they said is this. If you could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost to them, what value would our society place on that? And he goes on to show that that elixir does exist and is called religion. Now, drawing from that article and a number of other sources, I, I, I lack time, but let me just cover two of the big reasons that, that they give and others give why Christianity could be considered a miracle drug. Here's the first reason. It really is more blessed to give than receive. That's a quote that Paul makes from Jesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Christians give, and they are positively impacted by it. Um, in your notes, I put a quote from the social scientist Jonathan Haidt, who is a committed atheist. Jonathan Haidt wrote this. Surveys have long shown that religious believers in the United States are happier, healthier, longer-lived, and more generous to charity and each other than secular people. Religious believers give more money than secular folk to secular charities and to their neighbors. They give more of their time to and of their blood. By the way, in that article, there's a journal piece at the bottom, I include this. He said this, you can't use the new atheists as your guide to these lessons. They conduct biased reviews of the literature, close quote. He's right. Christianity is a miracle drug. It's more blessed to give than receive. Another example, number two, godliness with contentment is great gain. A quote from 1 Timothy 6.6, 6. Christians express by far the highest measures of gratitude and contentment. Gratitude and contentment are the key ingredients overall for how social scientists measure happiness. Um, this, this is why whenever you look at the World Health Report, you'll see, you'll see eras, they, they do all this tracking by quarters, you'll see eras where per capita income goes up quite a bit, and the SWB, the, the, um, the subjective well-being, what we call happiness, that won't change at all. In fact, sometimes it will go down when income goes up. But when religious practice goes up in a culture, you'll always see the SWB climb. It, it shoots up. It's just fascinating. The, the truth is, hopelessness is exposed as a lie in the face of the reality and wonder of church growth. Further, the positive contribution of, of Christianity is staggering. Just consider these statistics. U.S. government says that religion contributes $1. trillion annually to the U.S. economy. That's net, by the way, net 1.2 trillion. 91% of Americans say churches as a whole are a benefit to their communities. 75% of atheists say the church serves an important role in strengthening community bonds. Believers who pray many times a day have increased 8% in the, in the past 30 years. Evangelicals have grown from 18% of the U.S. population in 1972 to 28% in 2020. Mainline Protestants have declined from 35% to 12% during that time. The percentage of Americans, this one blows most people away, the percentage of Americans who attend a local church at some point during the year, attend a local church, has grown from 17% in 1776 to 34% in 1850 to 51% in 1906 to 69% today. Now, weekly church attendance, every week attendance, that has fallen from 44% high in 1956 to 35% today. However, all of that loss has come from liberal churches. Conservative church attendance has, has grown. 
in the 21st century, mainline Protestant membership has dropped. The liberal church has dropped by 5 million. Evangelical membership has grown by 2 million in America. From 1907 to 2017, Christianity has seen a 408% increase in Africa. 324% increase in Asia, 124% increase in Latin America, 71% growth in Oceania, 37% growth in the U.S. We are experiencing the highest levels of regular church attendance among 18 to 29-year-olds since 1972. One more stat for you. From 2000 to 2017, evangelicals grew 43%. Charismatic churches grew 45%. Independent churches like you grew 56%. All Protestants increased 32%. Roman Catholics grew 20%. It's astounding. Now, I know, I know, that brings up a question that you're, that you're asking in your, in your Kronk imitation from the Emperor's New Groove. You're, hello, Kronk. You're asking yourself. Hey, Pastor Wayne. First off, a little squirrel told me that it's your birthday. <laughs> That's nice. Happy birthday, big guy. Squeak, squeaker. Yes. I've got a question for you. Just okay. because it's growing now, how do we know that the church can't die? <laughs> what if some poison came in, some poison for the church, some poison designed to kill the church, the church's poison? <laughs> Couldn't that trajectory of hopelessness come true? Thank you. Man, you do that voice well. Give Kronk a hand, please, would you? Thank you, Kronk. Man, that's good. How do we know? Let me just ask you, how do we know the church cannot die? How do we know? Yeah, Jesus said so. That's right. Look, Matthew 16. But you... Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The church cannot die. Now, that... That doesn't mean that Jesus' invisible universal church won't face problems. He already said it would. But the church will not and cannot be defeated. Now, please note, there, there is a difference. You understand, there's a difference between a group of Christians in a local assembly like, like us here and Jesus' invisible church. Lo local churches are, by definition, not the whole of Jesus' church. In the same way, the Lord's universal church does not dictate policy to the local assemblies. That's why it so often gets missed. That's why the book of Acts doesn't just speak of the church. It talks of the churches, the churches, right? A local assembly may falter. A local assembly may even die. But you know what happens? Two more rise up in its place because the universal church of Jesus cannot be overpowered. All God's people said? All right, so what do we do? If the church won't die, but it does face problems, what should we be doing in our time and our place? Five applications come to my mind. First, celebrate the living hope. That's the proper response to this verse, 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Because Jesus lives, those who accept his mercy have an unshakable living hope. Amen? Contrast that hopeful message with the new atheist dogma espoused by, by people like uh, Oxford's Richard Dawkins, uh, his book, uh, River Out of Eden. The universe, Dawkins says, that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom. No design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now, <laughs> 
That Dawkins' comment there is, is replete with, with logic fallacies. Nonetheless, that is the reason I read that. I want you to see the worldview that is being pounded, repeatedly pounded into people's heads. David Wade of our pulpit team sent me a great book. It's by a, a pastor named Gabe Fleurer. And, uh, and he said this. He's, he's referring to Dawkins' River Out of Eden, that quote we read of, of indifference, of horrible indifference. He said this, if that, pitiless indifference, is what you think about the world, if that's where you live, is it any wonder people have lost any kind of hope? And he's right. The trajectory of hopelessness dominates, absurdly dominates our culture's thinking. He says he sees that hopelessness in three ways, and I think these are accurate. Gabe says, um, hopelessness is seen in our desire for endless amusement, especially endless scrolling on social media. We do so because we're hopeless. Those of you scrolling right now are really convicted. Um, <laughs> you see it in our discontent. Even in the presence of plenty, we're discontent. It's a sign of hopelessness. And you see it in our cynicism. I think he's right. So I'd like to challenge you for something. The next week, I want to, I want to give you this challenge. In fact, I would love for you to write me in and tell me what you learned from this. Here's what I would really strongly encourage you to join me in doing in the next week. During the next week, Spend no more than 10 minutes a day on social media. 10 minutes a day. Limit. Log on. Say happy birthday. Log off. That's it. Right? Give thanks every day. Many times every day. Thankfulness changes you. And then this one's a little esoteric, but I think you'll understand what I mean. Let's, let's work to shed that thick, cynical armor that we develop to protect ourselves, and let's just openly celebrate our living hope instead. What do we do in the face of the lies, the attacks on Christianity? How do we respond to this trajectory of hopelessness? We keep celebrating our living hope. And secondly, we speak truth. Ephesians chapter 4. Then in context of it, when we mature in Christ, we no longer are little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love. Let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Christ. This is not just for the pulpit. This is not just for Sunday school. All Christians are called to speak the truth in love in our homes, at work, in our play, at family devotions, in Bible study, in the temptations in your own mind. Speak truth so we all grow mature. There's a corporate aspect to this as well. I am incredibly blessed to teach and learn with you folks. You, you probably don't know this. There is not a day, there is not a single day I can think of in the last 15 years that I haven't received encouragement from some member of this congregation to keep teaching truth. Well done. Thank you. Bless you. Thank you for that. And by the way, it's in your own self-interest. It is. If I keep teaching truth, your church stays healthy. Look, Dr. Jim Dennison said it really well not long ago. He said, the churches that are declining are churches that Jesus cannot bless because they're not, and here he quotes from the Great Commission, Matthew 29, they're not teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Close quote. What do we do? We teach truth, we celebrate our living hope, and we walk by the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. So they're in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. 
Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, and that's written as a first-class condition in the Greek, which means it's like sense, we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. I don't have time for a deep dive into this text. In fact, that wouldn't really fit our purpose. I can say this, there is a clear contrast in this passage. The flesh, my own personal power, which is shot through with sin, produces evident sins. But when I actively yield to God, I can, I can move, I can work, I can live. In a word, I can walk by God's Spirit. And that produces evident fruit. Since I believe in Jesus and I have been crucified with Him, I should rely on God the Spirit for my daily empowerment. I should walk by the Spirit. Would you like your, your personal life, would you like your local church to be full of column B? Then, then walk by the Spirit. In, in light of this crushing conflict between cancel culture and the growth of Christianity, how should we live? We celebrate our living hope, we speak truth, we walk by the Spirit. Fourth, we show love in hospitality. Last passage turn today. Go, go a couple of pages back to John 13. John 13, go to, go to verse 34. John 13, 34. It's near the beginning of that upper room discourse. Jesus says, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, this is so cool. The book of Hebrews emphasizes that and explains that command this way. And I apologize for the typo. It's actually Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 takes Jesus' command, love one another, and says this, let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality. This is awesome. Okay, God says Jesus' command has no stopping date. Let, let brotherly love continue in perpetuity. And he says that love is expressed in hospitality. These two are connected. Here's how we know. The, he uses forms of the exact same word. This is amazing. Look, the writer of Hebrews could have used uh, a different word of love here. There are four Greek options. The, the best would actually have been agape there. But instead, he uses a form of phileo, the, the word for brotherly love, right? And then, describing hospitality, there were a plethora of words he could have used instead. But he chose to use a form of phileo, the same word, to show these concepts are connected. Here's how they're connected. From antiquity, uh, philoxenia, the word we translate hospitality. Philoxenia meant love towards strangers, um, sojourners, uh, pe people, people who are different, people who are relationally far from you. They're not relationally near to you. That's philoxenia. D do you see what God is saying? He's saying that your Philadelphia, your brotherly love, the affection you have for those who are near to you, your brethren in the community, that, that shows itself, that fleshes itself out. You fulfill Jesus' law, not just by loving those who are relationally near Philadelphia, but by loving the ones, Philoxenia, who are far away. That's incredible. Rosaria Butterfield was once one of those people who attacked Christianity, trajectory of hopelessness could be the title of her life story. She was absolutely caught up in hopelessness, attacking Christians all the time. But 
There were some Christians that just kept inviting her into their homes. They just kept inviting her over all the time, all the time, even gave her a house key to their house. And she was around these different people all the time. She saw how these Christians loved each other, Philadelphia, and it began to reach toward her in hospitality, Philoxenia. And, and she was challenged by that love. She realized she had to really investigate and do what she'd never done and really wrestle with Jesus. And when she did, she trusted him as her savior. And now Dr. Butterfield opens her own home to other people who are not Christian. Here's a few of my favorite lines from her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I recommend it highly. These are three of my favorite lines in the book. Radically ordinary hospitality shows this skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of the kingdom. And then she says, let God use your home, apartment, dorm room, front yard, community gymnasium, or garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Because that's the point, building the church and living like a family, the family of God. Amen? All right, one final application. We should keep planting new churches. We should always want to be a part of Acts 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. I don't know if you know this. Many of you probably don't. But Frisco Bible has helped dozens of church plants Many dozens of church plants in our history. Some of them we have been very involved in. We have ourselves planted three churches that were the direct work of Frisco Bible. Two were here in Texas. One was in Capel, a church that didn't last. It didn't make it. The other was this one, Grace Bible Church uh, in Lavernia, Texas, outside of San Antonio, which is thriving to this day. Our third one uh, is in Bologna, Italy. Um, at the request of an Italian evangelical church there, we planted a small English-speaking church in Bologna. Long story, but really a great story. And our elders feel that right now, this is the time for us to plant a church once again. It's time for us to do our fourth church plant. And this time we're looking in our own area. We have brought in an experienced uh, pastor, an experienced church planter to lead in this effort. Chad, come on up. I want to introduce you all to Chad Bailey. Please give a hand to Chad Bailey. Chad is going to uh, Chad is going to head up our church planting effort. Pastor Chad, welcome. It's good to be here. Thank yeah. you, Pastor Wayne. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Squeak, squeak them. Um, the uh, tell us a, tell us a little bit about your family. Would you tell us about them? Yeah, uh, today is actually my wife and I's uh, 18th wedding anniversary, <clears throat> uh, which is which is great. So big day for both of us. Uh, she unfortunately is not here. We'll introduce what is. Uh, uh, who is representative of our family in a moment. Um, the little girl there in that picture is, is sick. So I uh, wish they were all here, but she is the better part of me, married 18 years, high school sweethearts. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm looking at them because you know all of this, I guess. Uh -huh. but, um, but met in high school, married at 20, uh, finished uh, undergrad together. And by the time we finished, our firstborn was in the audience already, uh, mm -hmm. barely, but he was there. Uh, we had been probably six, eight months already in vocational ministry. So we're uh, new in marriage, new with family already, uh, and for a period of time there in school. So life started very quickly, uh, very busy early on. And it's, it's neat to see the Lord using us in ministry in different places and kind of parallel to that, how our family has grown. So Graham from Oklahoma City, um, 
They're from Oklahoma. I yep. rest my case. Anyway, uh, yes. So Grant from Oklahoma City, who is and we're 16. wise enough to leave. Okay, sorry. <laughs> For all of you in Oklahoma, <laughs> I love you. What's the bumper sticker? We're not born here, but we got yeah, here. Yeah, that's right. As that's fast right. As, we, as fast as we could. Uh, and if you're wondering, it's like up to 13 or 14 years at this point yeah. that we are Texans. <clears throat> but Graham was born in Oklahoma City uh, 16 years ago last week. Uh, Cooper was born in Phoenix, Arizona, where we went out there to serve at a church for a while. Uh, he's 13. Uh, had in there uh, on my lap in that picture, she's five, and she was born in Sherman, Texas. We originally moved here to serve at a Bible church in the Fort Worth Arlington area ago many years ago. So just parallel to ministry to see our family grow has been amazing. Uh, we do have a dog, not dog people, but our kids love dogs. So we have a dog, uh, Luna. She's a Catahoula. Google it. We didn't know either. Thought we were getting something different. Um, <laughs> but she, uh, she's been with us for about a year now. My mom has since joined the family in Frisco, um, only child. So she's able to do that. It's just been a big part of our family for a number of years here in the Frisco area. Okay, so why, um, why do you think, I could talk about why our elders think, why do you think we need to plant a church uh, in this area? Yeah, uh, more could be said and will be said. Three reasons just to leave us with um, that have been big for us personally, just as the Lord has stirred up our desire, uh, but in terms of the need to is numerical uh, growth in this area, as many of you have seen firsthand. Uh, is crazy. There, there is a need numerically. Uh, just a quick stat would be over the past 20 years or so, Collin County as a whole has grown by about 25,000 people a year. And, and again, like most of us know around here, much of that growth percentage-wise has been in our very own backyard. So just numerically, there's a need for more churches. Second reason is culturally, um, because as you think about this, the, the Collin County area, our backyard, here doesn't just need more churches. Um, in all humility and by God's grace, this area here needs more good churches, and by that I mean faithful churches committed to um, doing the Great Commission. And I love how you guys phrased that, but doing the Great Commission by the power of the Holy Spirit because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Say it with me for the glory. glory of God. That's familiar to you guys. No faithful local church while they might phrase it differently, in my humble opinion, is free to have a different mission vision. And, and our area needs more yeah. churches committed to that. So yeah. uh, we understand culturally there's a lot of folks who might be very comfortable with attending a church and yet uh, tragically unfamiliar with the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and biblical community. Yeah. And all God's people said. Amen. The last reason, um, getting long-winded, but um, you are a preacher. Uh, last reason would just be spiritually. Uh, Wayne's mentioned it. I think it was mentioned at Fold. Uh, starting new churches is statistically one of the best ways to reach new people. The lost, unchurched, dechurched. Yep, it is fascinating. The people that people that are, uh, don't know Christ or or have been out of church for a long time, they they will not always be comfortable coming here with you. You invite them, and hopefully they will. But but it is amazing how often they will jump into a new church plant, which seems, because you and I know how much work that is, but they, they just love it. They love being needed. So anyway, we are so thrilled to have you. Tell us about the next steps. What happens next? Uh, over the next year and a half, uh, and I'll just kind of go sequentially in order. Uh, so for the rest of this year, stage one is basically for the, the Baileys to, to bless the congregation here and be known. So by that, that will look like me teaching and serving in a variety of areas, our family, <clears throat> getting involved in community and just building uh, sincere organic relationships. That's kind of step one for us. 
Uh, step two, stage two, would kind of be the end of this year, beginning of next year, which would look a lot like casting the vision and recruiting. Uh, next spring-summer period, stage three, would look a little bit like training that launch team, that core team, while making some preparations behind the scenes, even in some very visible ways, preparations for the launch there, and then stage four being launch, uh, awesome. which would be next fall, uh, beginning of 2023. But again, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. That's right? well said. Yeah. Yeah. But those are our That's plans. awesome. Well done. Give, give Chad a hand. We're so grateful for you.